Amen. Amen. Uh, if we could actually just remain standing and turn our Bibles to the book of Galatians, we're rounding up our journey here. And so today we're going to read Galatians 5, verse 26 through 6 to 10. And as you guys turn there, I'll read for us. And if y'all could follow along, uh, that would be great. Uh, Galatians 5, um, I put 26 there, but I'm actually going to start at 25 um, to 6 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. It, it reads, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch over yourselves or you might be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, then then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. 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 Verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of the Lord. Peace be God. Have a seat. As we, uh, as we round up uh, Galatians, in this last section of Paul's letter, um, he kind of sums up what he's been talking about and what he's been trying to share with the churches in Galatia. And essentially, Paul is, has been addressing two important conditions, two conditions that need to be resolved in every human being. There is a behavior and there is an identity. And that these two things need to find their conclusion in the gospel of grace, that they need to be wrestled through. And that both the behavior and the identity, they all come down to a condition of the heart. Can we say heart? It needs to be solved there. That in our identity and our behavior, these things need to be wrestled through this heart condition. But what is the problem? What is the issue that needs to be resolved at a behavioral level and at an identity, identity level? What Paul says is that it is being conceited and envying one another. That these two things will inhibit our ability to live as a free people, to be in a community of believers as free people, being conceited and being envious. And so we're going to break that down. And, and this, this section is going to probably take two weeks, so we'll do this in two parts. But for today, I want to look at what it means to be conceited and what it means to be envious. So let's start with that word conceited. Can we say conceited? That word in the Greek, it comes from the Greek word kenodoxia. And Paul is saying, don't pursue this. Don't per pursue kenodoxia. And that essentially means a vain glory. But what does that mean? What does a vain glory mean? It refers to an empty space. An empty space that exists in every human heart. A gaping hole that exists in every single person who has ever lived and who continues to live today. 
You see Paul in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 2, he teaches us that every human being, that deep within their heart, they know that they were designed for God and by God. That in every human heart, whether you are a believer or not, there is a desire to know him and to love him, to be known by him and to be loved by him. We know deep in the recesses of our heart that we were meant for more, that we were meant to live for more than just the tangible things of life, that we know that we were meant to live for more than just ourselves. And this is true when you think about it, that no matter what background you come from, no matter what your family situation is, no matter what your economic situation is, we all have this deep longing for purpose. And this is why every person at one point in life will ask life's biggest questions. Like, what's the point? Have you ever asked that? What's the point? I don't know why I looked at Josh when he said that. But maybe you feel that during like finals week. What's the point? Maybe you feel like during college apps. What's the point? What's the point? What is the purpose of my life? Why do I exist? What is the meaning of anything? And what the Bible will teach us is that this question comes from a God-sized hole, or more specifically, a God-sized approval that we all desire. That deep in our hearts, we need to hear the words, well done my good and faithful servant. Well done, my beloved. Well done, you, my son. Well done, you, my daughter. And I think that portion speaks to us very well as children. Because as children, we need that type of affirmation. I don't know what type of family system that you come from, and I don't know how your parents raised you. But I, one thing that I do know is that as children, we need this type of affirmation. And I think typically, typically, I'm going to make a generalization here. As uh, immigrant parents, immigrant parents aren't the best at positive affirmation. Amen? Amen. Your dad give you a hug and kiss you goodnight, Charlie? Because I have never experienced that before in my life. I don't even know. That'd be awkward, right? I remember when my dad dropped me off for college, um, we had this weird moment because um, I, I, I was leaving the household, essentially. And he went in for a hug, but it was awkward for him because that's not something that he's ever done before. <laughs> and I didn't know how to receive it, so I was kind of like on guard because normally when I see this, it's followed by a strike not an embrace. And so it's just like this weird, like, awkward, like, okay, Nick, I said, and that was it, because that's not something that I received all that much growing up, and maybe some of you can share in that experience. But the strange thing is, in that moment, I really wanted that warm embrace. I wanted it. Just like growing up, I, I wanted to hear the words, well done, good job, I'm proud of you. Hey, you don't have to push anymore. You don't have to tr keep trying. You've done good. Just stop and rest. But the problem is when you don't receive that, you develop an obsessive nature because you don't know what well done looks like. 
So you have to keep driving yourself. Keep pushing, keep pushing, and keep pushing in the desire for affirmation. That's why some of us push ourselves so rigorously in our academics. Some of us push ourselves so far in our extracurriculars or in our social life because what we desire is a deep need for approval. That's what the Bible will call kenodoxia. And the Bible will also teach us that while we need that affirmation from God, more often than not, we will seek it from any and every other source available to us. In our sinful nature, it is not our instinct to find approval from God, but it is our instinct to find self-approval or approval from the world. And the, why Paul brings it up is he says, if this is the way that you look at your life, then this is the way that this will impact relationships. Because a person who hears from their heavenly father, well done, my good and faithful servant, my beloved, in you I am well pleased. That type of person can live in a community, live in relation with others with the heart to serve, with the heart to give, knowing that it has received much. But a person who doesn't have this cannot operate with that type of heart because without this affirmation from God, Everything we do will be an attempt to fill that gaping hole in our life, an attempt to bolster our fragile egos, an attempt to build ourselves up so that we feel that we are worth something, that we are indeed valued. And we will seek any and every avenue that we can in order to do it. That's why for so many of us, the quest to fill that gaping hole, that kenodoxia, it comes with a future job, a future occupation, the quest for financial stability and for comfort. Because as Americans, we've equated this idea of success and happiness. And yet studies will show that over the past 50 years, the average income in America has doubled, but the rate of happiness has only gone up one or 2%. That income has doubled, but people aren't any happier. And maybe you come from a very affluent, well-off family. Could you say that because of that, you've never experienced misery? Have you ever seen a miserable, rich person? There's plenty. But why do we quest for that? Because we want to fill that empty hole that if I just made enough and I could buy enough, I could live with myself. I could even make my parents proud and get that affirmation I so deeply desire. For others of us, it's relational success. We try to fill that hole with our social life. If I had more friends, more meaningful relationships, if I could just be more intimate with someone else, if I could be with that guy, if I could be with that girl, it would be enough to satisfy the deep longings of my heart. But brothers and sisters, have you ever seen someone in a miserable dating relationship? I have. <laughs> have you ever seen someone in a miserable marriage? Of course. Why? Because it's not sufficient. While it is a good thing, it is not everything. And yet for others of us, it could be driven by academic success. You know, what amazes me is that a 4.0 is a perfect GPA, but you can get above a 4.0. Isn't that crazy? My brother was like that. My brother was like a 4.2 GPA, like a super nerd. Actually, why do I say was? He still is. He still is a super nerd. I remember when I was in high school, we had a valedictorian. Um, and 
what we called her was brains on wheels. Um, and, and the reason why, she carried one of those rolly backpacks, and she was super smart. And she, if I'm not mistaken, she had like a 4.45 GPA. Um, and we took the SAT in Chicago. She got a 36. Just perfect, perfect, perfect. And I was in the same AP English class as her. I don't know how that happened. I'm not that smart. <laughs> but it did. And we got paired up on an assignment together. Um, but knowing me, rather than talking about the assignment, I just started asking her about her life. I was like, you know, your parents must be really proud of you. You got like a 4.5, and did you get a perfect score on the ACT? And I was like, I don't have any of those things. I've fallen so short of them. Your parents must be so proud. You must be so happy. You know, you're probably going to go to Harvard or Stanford or whatever it is. And in this moment of vulnerability, she said, honestly, Stephen, I hate it. I hate it. I hate that I have to keep this up. Don't get me wrong. I love to study, and, and I want to excel. But this pressure, it just gets to me. It gets to me. And so we spent the rest of the evening just talking about life rather than whatever book we were supposed to be talking about. Because even for her to be at the top spot out of a class of 1,500 people, she was number one, there was still something that couldn't satisfy her heart. And that's Canadoxia. And every single one of us, in one measure or another, are trying to fill a gaping hole in our heart with something. And in that place, Paul says, that is not freedom, but also it will inhibit you from living freely with others. Because others, those around you, they will not be a means, they will not be people that you can love freely and serve freely. There will be a people that you will try to use, resources that you will try to use to fill that empty space in your heart. And that's why the second thing that Paul talks about is envy. Can we say envy? Envy can often show itself in an inferiority complex. It's to look at those around you and compare yourself to them. Feel as though they have more, whether it's materially, physically, um, personality-wise, to feel that they're better off, and then to resent them for it. That's envy. To look, to compare yourself to everyone else around you, feel that you have less, and to resent it. That's the heart that Paul is talking about. But there's also another side to that coin, a superiority complex to envy as well. And what I mean by that is to say, I have more. And so therefore, I need to keep having more so that when others look at me, they can be jealous of me so that they can see that I have it together. But that grind, it will leave you hating yourself. And either way, whichever side of that coin of envy you may find yourself in, the outcome is the same. You will look at relationships in terms of what they can do for you. It will always say more about you than anything else, that your relational life will have you at the center of the universe. And Paul knows this, and he knows that this is a problem that exists within our lives. And so he says, don't do this. That's how he concludes chapter 5. And then he starts chapter 6, the first six verses saying, this is how I want you to live instead. Because that other path will only lead to greater enslavement. But this is living in true freedom. Not by doing all of that, 
but by doing this. That I want you to change some behaviors in your life, not so that you can gain something, but in order to resist being conceited and being envious. But how? What is the life that Paul wants us to live? The first way is a restorative life. Can we say restore? Paul tells us here to restore a person who is in sin, to someone who is caught in a transgression. What does that look like? Well, let's say someone has a deep character flaw. Maybe they're too abrasive in their personality, and so they're always offending other people. Do you know someone like that? Maybe they talk too much. <laughs> Maybe uh, there's no filter in their brain. And so if it, if it happens here, it, it comes out here. Do you know someone like that? It's like my dad. There's no, no filter. Whatever he thinks, it comes right back out. If you're humble and not self-righteous, if you know the affirmation from the Father, you can actually serve this type of a person in a very meaningful way. But if you struggle with canadoxia, with vainglory, what you'll do is you'll look at a person like this, someone with a deep character flaw, and say, it's not worth my time. It's not worth my time. It's not worth my resources. That you'll say, why would I bother to help this person if I'm not going to get anything out of this, why bother? You will always calculate the cost. So you won't spend time with anyone who may take extra resources from you and take away from your own personal goals. It'll always be about what they can offer you rather than what you can do for them. And to the degree that you might even start to become a person that may take pride in being depended upon. That you like to help people, not because you like helping people, but you like how it makes you feel. You like what it says about you, being a person who is dependable. But what Paul's talking about here is a person who actually serves. A person who doesn't avoid people who are a wreck and doesn't keep people around because it makes them feel better. But it's about building meaningful relationships, not to boost self-worth or ego, but to serve. To know the why of the pursuit. And that's what he's talking about when it comes to restoring someone else. You do it not because it makes you feel better, but because you know what it means to be loved. And so therefore, you can give and serve freely. The second thing that Paul charges us with is to carry each other's burdens. What does that look like? You know, if there's a, if there's a box that needs to be carried, and Eric's carrying it by himself, and let's say it's 100 pounds. And Eric's fully capable of it because he's tall and he's strong and so handsome. He picks it up. And we see him struggling a little bit. And so I come and I grab the other side of it. Then all of a sudden, Eric is only lifting 50 pounds and I'm lifting. Come on, Koreans. 50 pounds. Well, let's say we get two more people in on this, right? Emily joins in and Kristen joins in. That's four. I chose four because three, that's harder math. So that's four. So if there's four of us carrying this 100-pound box, how much weight are we each carrying? 25. Your parents are very, very proud of you. We're all carrying it. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what it means to carry each other's burdens. But you see the implications here that you can never truly carry someone else's burdens unless you carry some of their burden yourself. That there's a sacrifice. That there's going to be a cost. That loving one another 
has an element of sacrifice involved. What does that look like? We see that with things like helping the poor. Maybe there's a charitable cause, people who are in need, whether it's a a GoFundMe account or a larger project going on. And oftentimes we'll say things like, I would give, but I can't afford it. I would give, but I can't afford it. What does that mean? Typically, more often than not, for us living in the suburbs, that means it's not I can't afford it, but I just don't want to be that inconvenienced. I don't want to be that inconvenienced. That there is some measure of fun that I can give, but it's just going to cost me too much, so I am unwilling to do it. Maybe there's an opportunity to serve those who are in need. And the thing that we'll often say is, I don't have any time. What are we really saying? Are we really saying that in the 24 hours a day that there's literally zero time? No, what we're saying is it's an inconvenience. That it's outside the amount of time that I'm willing to give to another individual. And what we see is that we tend to only give to the degree of our comfort. That we'll give enough so that we're seen as decent people. But not so much that it gets us out of our comfort zone. That even in giving, we can be building each other up. But what Paul is saying is, I want you to carry each other's burdens. To make a sacrifice for those around you. For those who are in need. You know, as a church, we're partnering with Mafi, but there's so many other opportunities, even right here in this ministry, for us to carry each other's burdens. And sometimes carrying another person's burden is just listening to them. It's just talking with them. Not just about school or about life, just whatever, but really their heart. So that they can share their burdens with you. And in doing so, you will pick it up. One thing I've noticed about being a youth pastor and I love you guys very much. Um, but I noticed that <laughs> youth kids, <laughs> some of you don't have a, uh, it doesn't matter how late it is. If you need something, you'll call me. <laughs> it doesn't matter how late it is. I've gotten messages at 2 in the morning. <laughs> I've gotten phone calls at 11, just random times. And I'm going to be 100% honest with y'all for a moment. When I see those calls late at night, I start thinking before I pick up. If you notice that it takes five or six rings, it's because I was thinking. Because I'm awake. I don't really sleep that much. But it's like, do I really want to pick up this phone call right now? Do I really want to answer this text? And what am I asking myself in that moment? Am I willing to sacrifice for someone who's in need? Am I willing to sacrifice? And if the answer is no, click, away, done. I'm going to, you know, finish Captain America Winter Soldier or go to sleep, whatever it is, right? Whatever. But what does that say about my heart for those who are in need? That at the end of the day, it is my comfort that is greater than someone else's suffering. But if I pick it up, yes, there's going to be a sacrifice, if I answer that text, yes, my thumbs will hurt because undoubtedly they're going to ask me a question that requires more than a two-sentence response. But it's serving someone in need. It's carrying their burden so that they don't have to carry it themselves through the night. As believers, we're called to carry one another's burdens. 
And Paul says in verse 3, he says, if anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Why does Paul throw this in at verse 3? It seems so random, right? Restore one another, carry each other's burdens. Why say this right here? Essentially, if I could paraphrase it, Paul's saying, if you think you're better than you really are, you're lying to yourself. Why? Why throw this in? Because it is a type of pride that assumes that we are naturally giving people, that we are naturally kind people, that we are naturally loving people, to think that we're a little better than those around us. And that is a part of the sinful condition that we live in in terms of our identity and how we view ourselves, that we're not that bad and we're probably a little better than most. It is a type of pride that measures who you are based on comparing yourself to those around you. But the gospel of grace, it doesn't have any room for that. Look what Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 11. He's talking to his disciples. And he says this, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you see the subtle catch there? Jesus is talking about what it means to ask and to receive. But do you see what he calls the disciples? He calls them evil. He says, you who are evil, even though he loves the disciples, the disciples dear, dearly, he says, you are evil. You and your sinful nature are deeply and profoundly flawed, much more than you will possibly recognize. And so you can either be a person that tries to cover up your flaws by using other people, which is a rather sad and pathetic way to live, or, or, you can see yourself as you are, as the gospel sees you, as a deeply flawed person who is deeply, deeply, deeply loved. Deeply and deeply loved. And the problem with viewing yourself incorrectly is that it doesn't address the problem. Because when you recognize that you are a deeply flawed person, you see yourself as you are, then you can come to God as you are to quench the deep needs of your heart, knowing that only there you will be satisfied, that no amount of money, praise, or accolades could possibly fill that gaping hole in your heart, nothing except affirmation from the Father. That's why Paul says in verse 4 and 5, each, of, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Now, what does that mean? He uses the word load rather than burden to signify something else. What he's saying is you don't have to compare yourself with others to determine your beauty, your value, or your worth. You don't have to compare yourself with others to find the affirmation that you seek. But you should measure yourself according to your own actions, bearing your own load. I'll give you an example of this. If you come from a pretty well-adjusted family, things have been pretty smooth, and so therefore you are a fairly well-adjusted person. 
You may look at someone who comes from a very different family system. And you might say, hey, I'm definitely better than them. Like on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm like a 5. But that person is a 3. They're a 3. They're two points lower than me. What you're failing to see is your own load. Because while you coming from a stable family might be at a five, they may come from a very unstable place, a very, very profoundly broken place. And the fact that they are at a three is astronomically greater than the fact that you are at a five. Jesus says this to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus says to Peter, you, Peter, you're going to die for me. You're going to die for my name. You are going to suffer and you are going to die following me. And one of the greatest moments of humanity in the Bible, Peter, what does he do? He looks at John and says, what about him? What about him? Isn't that just like a kid thing to do? For those of you who are siblings, maybe you're getting in trouble and you want to point at your brother. Like, what about him? He did it too. That's exactly what's happening here. But what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says to him, never mind him. I'm talking to you. He's saying, get your eyes on God and stop looking at everyone else. Because when you look at God, what you see is that while a vain glory, while an envious person and a conceited person will live their life saying, hey, my time is greater than yours. My life for yours. My resources for yours. When we look at God, we see a God who says the same thing but in a twist. We see our Lord Jesus who says, my life for yours, my standing for yours, my resources for yours, who I am for you. And when you start to tap into that, and when that sinks deeper and deeper into your heart, then you can know what it means to be a person who lives freely and gives freely, knowing what you have received. But it takes us looking at God in order to see what that looks like in our lives. Let's pray. Holy Father, your word tells us that because of what your son did for us, that we have good standing with you, that we are known and that we are loved, that what we hear is well done and good job and welcome home. But Lord, there are times where we don't live that out. And there are so many times where we look for affirmation in every other place other than you. But Lord, I pray that you would redirect our hearts. Holy Spirit, redirect our hearts so that we would know what it means to be perfectly known, perfect loved by you so that we can know others and love them as you love us. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.